week. As PBS airs its American Masters episode on Laura Ingalls Wilder, we talk with her biographer. I wanted to look at the history behind her life uh, and, and show how her life was just so emblematic of all these major movements. And our year-end look at 2020's top stories continues with our biggest issues of the year that was. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Laura Ingalls Wilder was one of the 20th century's most celebrated writers. Her Little House on the Prairie series was part memoir, part fiction. It fueled the frontier myth, but as the century turned, so too did public attention on her life and her portrayal of minorities. We'll look back at our 2018 interview with Caroline Fraser. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her biography. And as is our custom, we'll finish our look at the year's top stories. Now, there was no shortage of COVID-19 related topics in the first half of our list, including, including the disease's impact on vulnerable communities, work and family life, the mask controversy, and of course, education. Nothing has been untouched by the pandemic, but this week we branch out into some of 2020's other big news stories in New Mexico. Here's our panel of journalists. All right, this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast for Friday, January 1st, 2021. Happy New Year's to you all. Here is to an about face, a turnaround, a year of promise out of such a, um, a down year because of COVID-19 in 2020. We're turning the page and uh, we hope only the best for all of you in 2021. Before we fully turn the page, though, we've got some business to attend to. That's finishing up our list of the top 10 stories of 2020. Last week, we counted down from 10 to 6. Today, we'll go all the way from 5 to 1. And again, a reminder, this is not a scientific list. This is what we came up with collectively as a New Mexico and Focus team with some input. But we'd love to get your input on it as well. What did we miss? What did we have way off? Um, what uh, will you remember from 2020? So I encourage you to head to any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Let us know what you think. And want to remind you that our line panel is special this week. It's working journalists across the state who have covered all of these massive stories. We have Jessica Onshuras, the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, Andy Lyman of the New Mexico Political Report, as well as Julianne Grimm of the Santa Fe Reporter, and Dan Boyd of the Albuquerque Journal. So we're going to kick things off here with stories number five and number four. I'm not going to leak any of what they are. We'll just leave it up to Gene and the line panel to break it all down for you. We've arrived at our top five. Now, before we jump in, a reminder... This list is a non-scientific and only represents the thoughts and opinions of the New Mexico and Focus team with some help and input from a few others as well. We'd love for you to chime in with your thoughts on our Facebook page. I'd love to read those over the holiday. Now, back to finish off the list this week is our working journalists, the line panel from around the state. We welcome Jessica Onsures, news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. Also with us is Julianne Grimm. She's the editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Andy Lyman is back. He's a reporter at the New Mexico Political Report. 
and Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal, Dan Boyd, is with us as well. All right, guys, our fifth story of the year is climate change and all it entails. This is one that made everyone's list as we voted in some way or another. And Jessica, I think you had it close to the top of your list, if I recall. What did you see in your coverage that had this in the front of your mind? Our state, uh, our portion of the state is huge oil and gas um, development. So climate change is one of those primary topics that we talk about all the time. We mm -hmm. run into the issue of um, pollution, air pollution, ozone pollution. We run into the issue of polluting of our natural and public lands here and of our water sources as well. So when we talk about climate change, we're talking about that general impact from industry point of view, but also um, we are seeing a lot of activity from environmental organizations in the state, I feel, in my, in my opinion, recently, really addressing the issue. Hmm. Dan Boyd, um, not COVID uh, dependent, though, the Trump administration asked early on for some industries to police themselves. Any impact you saw from this? Yeah, I mean, I think you could um, maybe argue either way that that maybe opened up some new um, federal lands in New Mexico to uh, oil and gas activities, you know, which uh, on the one hand benefits state revenues, but on the other hand, I think there is concern, like Jessica mentioned, about the, the environmental impact of that. And I think looking ahead now with um, President-elect Biden, you know, there's been talk about maybe um, banning um, new oil leases on federal land and and what that could mean for New Mexico. So I, I think we are kind of at a seemingly at a crossroads here on some of those issues and, and not quite sure yet what that'll look like going forward. But obviously, New Mexico, you know, is at the forefront of that. And uh, given some of the oil and gas development in the Permian and the advances in technology, but also the real concern about the way some things are trending and protecting our natural resources for the future. Mm -hmm. Hey, Andy, you mentioned the Rio Grande drying and one of the bullets on your list, um, something we might see, but the impact of it, what it means for water users downstream or our battle with Texas. What's the upshot you might be seeing for 2021 here? You know, I, and I don't think that uh, this year was a ton different than other years and, and probably next year would be, I would say the same. It's kind of this ongoing thing. And again, the theme of, of all of this pandemic is sort of um, highlighting stuff that we were able to look over before, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the river, especially down in Jessica's area, right? The river dries up every year to absolutely nothing. Um, but then when you start to put all these other things together that our state's actually in another crisis, um, it sort of puts it right in front of our face, I think. Yeah. Julianne, you mentioned uh, in your list, another waterway, the Gila and the choice to forego building a dam or large diversion. Interesting point there. Where does that sit now? Where does that sit on your list for 2020? So the story that the Santa Fe reporter published earlier in the year that was written by Laura Paskus had the headline, Dead in the Water. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a good way to bring folks up to speed on this issue. This project is over uh, mm -hmm. for now. You know, this is the, uh, maybe the third time in, in recent contemporary history that the um, U.S. government has uh, tried to encourage uh, a diversion structure on the Gila River um, in southwestern New Mexico. Um, this is an area that's been, you know, it's a, there's a huge wilderness there, the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Area, and this is a beloved um, natural resource treasure. And I think it was a, a project that um, not a lot of people saw 
the benefit of. Mm -hmm. um, the state did go ahead and spend $17 million of federal funding on planning for this project that had a estimated price tag, should it have been built, of a billion dollars, that's with a B. Um, but you saw in 2019 that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham vetoed the state funding that would have been um, required to kind of keep going in this planning process. And then um, this year in 2020, the Interstate Stream Commission voted to end its contribution to environmental studies funding. And so those two things really were the proverbial nail on the coffin um, for that project. But, mm -hmm. you know, someone I know who has lived um, down in this neck of the woods for the last uh, 20 years or so said that he really thought, um, should this project get to the stage of groundbreaking that people are so passionate, they would be laying down in front of the bulldozers. That was his way of saying, you know, this is never going to happen. Right. And so for, you know, what we can tell now, the Gila diversion um, project is not going to happen. Um, that still means there's a conflict with, you know, New Mexico's complicated water rights and sharing water with Arizona um, and providing water for agriculture and for communities in that part of the state. And, and that hasn't been resolved. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to our next subject, we should note as well the forest fires that plagued us this year, certainly in the smoke. <laughs> That's certainly the folks in Santa Fe had to deal with in Albuquerque as well. It's on to our fourth biggest story of the year, and we should let you know that the 234 distinction was for us almost moot. They were also important. They were all of them very important, but COVID's impact on New Mexico's economy was undeniably important. And Dan Boy, let me start with you on this one because governments really had to scramble to adjust their budgets as the pandemic settled in. Take us through what you saw and covered at the state level. Yeah, I think it's, it's fundamentally altered the state's economy. Um, the legislature has had a, a couple special sessions, um, most recently here in November, a single day special session, including passing expanded unemployment benefits for workers, uh, business grants um, you know, for businesses who've been affected by the pandemic. Um, but I think the combination of just people's shopping habits changing and then the business restrictions certainly imposed by the state have really uh, had a big impact on businesses and workers. Uh, I think, you know, it's striking recently in a report about the state's revenue outlook that actually retail sales are up. People are still buying, but they're buying online. Um, small business uh, retail or is about down 40%. So I think remains to be seen whether that's the new normal going forward. Um, but certainly we've seen a lot of businesses, a lot of restaurants uh, going out of business and, and they probably won't be back. Uh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately going to be kind of the new landscape going forward. And maybe some new businesses will emerge post-pandemic to kind of fill those, uh, those vacancies. But I, you know, I don't think that's a given. That's a good point there. <clears throat> Jessica, I've got a question for you. And I'd like Julianne to follow up with her own uh, take on this as well. Uh, but Jessica, cities or areas like yours certainly rely on tourist income. And that seems like it would be a killer. In fact, you know, for some businesses, it was a killer, as Dan just mentioned. But how, how, do, how does the southeastern part of the state weathering the storm here? And then I'll cut to Santa Fe in a quick second. We had a uh, one-two punch with the decline in oil and gas. Um, we lost a lot of the business um, that was being generated by workers who were coming in for that industry. Mm -hmm. And then that was followed by COVID. You know, as Dan said, the closure of um, non-essential businesses to the public. We also, with the loss of tourism, it was just kind of the... the the largest kicker. We have uh, tons of hotels that are standing empty. We have restaurants that cater to that specific um, clientele. 
that are just shuttered for good as far as it, as we can tell. Mm -hmm. We know that the number of visitations to state and national parks and public lands and recreational areas and all of southern New Mexico have gone down um, by more than half. And they're bouncing back, yes, but will it be enough to recover? That's still a question. Jess, I got to ask you one more thing, though. You had a lot of restaurants in your area that defied the orders <laughs> to close. How impactful was that on business? Was, was that infectious? Did other people catch on to that and defy it as well? Or what happened there? I think that was the, the, the rising sentiment was we are behind them 100%. We understand their concerns. We know they are essential to our communities. Um, we're very rural, so we don't have a lot of them. And the ones that we do have provide a service that you know, that is important to us. Um, when a number of these restaurants got together with the New Mexico um, uh, Association to basically say, this is this is going to kill us, this is going to completely strand us. Um, the, the thought was that they probably won't get far. We knew that the state was pretty serious when it came to enforcement of these um, the, the closure notices. Um, and then the fines hit and it got really serious really quickly. Um, the the overall thought is that they they had to take up the fight. There was no question that they had to start questioning whether or not this, um, mandates made sense for us down here. Mm -hmm. Julianne, again, to Santa Fe, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your take on restaurants, particularly. I mean, here we are. The new year is like right in front of us. And there was reporting a month ago that upwards of thousands and thousands of restaurants were going to close by the end of the year unless you know something drastic happened but santa fe how's it how's that been for santa fe hanging in there especially with the I mean, tourist money yeah we are you know vastly dependent on the restaurant and hospitality industry i think it, it provides a lot of jobs in our community it mm -hmm. provides gross receipts tax revenue that's used by all the levels of government you know to provide services it's it's really um, a big part of the Santa Fe economy. And so, yeah, we had for most of the summer, the largest hotels in the city um, were not open for most of the summer. Um, even as things began to return, they're returning at an extremely limited capacity and people being discouraged to travel uh, both within the state and you know between states, that's had a big effect on, you know, right now hotels in the red counties, which is, uh, 32 of the 33 counties in the state. Our yeah. um, hotels are limited to 25 or 40% capacity, depending on whether they have a state certification. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're actually booking at that capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, I know some folks who spent the night in Taos um, a week or so ago, and they stayed at a hotel that had a capacity of more than 70 rooms, and there were seven rooms booked that night. Um, so if a hotel is operating at 10% capacity, um, you, you don't have to be able to do much math to know that's not sustainable. That's right. That's not the business model for success, for long-term success, yeah. certainly. Andy Lyman, Albuquerque was the only city in the state that automatically got a disbursement from the uh, CARES Act because of our size. Um, how's that city responded in ways that you've noticed? Um, I think that they've, they've, uh, they've been pushing money uh, to wherever they can. I keep getting press releases to say, I think I just got one the other day announcing some more CARES Act, not more CARES Act money, but uh, you know, more appropriations. Uh, mm -hmm. I think starting out the big thing for, and I, I guess every city, but especially Albuquerque was uh, to use that money for uh, the, the missing uh, gross receipts tax revenue. Right. Right. Because um, we, we're not necessarily as dependent on tourism as other places in the state, but mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, 
without going to stores or restaurants that that revenue goes down so um <clears throat> i think that's their big push is they would like to to sort of supplement that money mm -hmm. okay we'll have to leave that there we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment All right, before we dive back into the list, just want to bring to your attention a couple important things. Uh, last week on the show, I guess it was two weeks ago now, we mentioned the fact that Representative Deb Holland has made history by being the first Native American nominated to a cabinet position on the federal level. President-elect Joe Biden has tagged her to lead up the Department of the Interior. There will be nomination hearings and all of that upcoming, but it means that there will be a special election also that will have to be scheduled if she is approved. And that will likely happen at some point in the midst of a, a unique legislative session that will be held all virtually as the public will not be allowed to uh, enter the roundhouse coming up. And uh, the state of the state is scheduled for January 19th, which officially kicks off that 60-day legislative session. And we know our coverage and our work here on New Mexico and Focus will be especially important because, again, the only way you'll be able to follow what's going on in the Capitol is if you have a strong Internet connection and can watch those live streams of those committee and floor hearings. So these are all things we're gearing up for right away as 2021 kicks off. And so keep an eye out for all of that and ear out. We will be bringing you all we can. We're partnering again with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter to bring you important coverage of all of these important things. But for now, let's head back to the line opinion panel for stories number three and number two of 2020. As if 2020 didn't bring enough angst with climate change in our faces and a pandemic keeping our faces covered, hopefully, with masks, we also had an incredibly contentious election. All right, the big news, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump whether the president admits it or not. Locally, Republicans put the second congressional district back in their column. Ben Ray Lujan held off a better than expected run by TV weatherman Mark Ronchetti. Democrats solidified their hold on the state legislature. And Julianne, we saw huge interest in voting this time around. What grabbed you most when all the ballots were tallied? Well, there's a couple of things that are interesting. I mean, we only saw about 15% of voters cast a ballot in New Mexico on election day, mm -hmm. um, which is a huge difference from years before. But I'd like to note that turnout was in the high 60s. And in most classrooms, a test grade in the high 60s is still a D. Um, so right. we're not, you know, <laughs> you know, we can be proud of ourselves for having good turnout and for people caring about this election, but I don't think a D is a great grade for a democracy. Um, you know, I think it's the other thing that's interesting is that we had the Supreme Court weigh in, you know, the county clerks wanted to send all of the ballots, um, send every registered voter a ballot automatically by mail. And of course, the state Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and I think that the kind of the next wave we're going to see on election um, right. law is should the state of New Mexico pass some laws uh, to, to have that happen rather than trying to pressure the courts into changing the rules at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Andy, women huge this uh, cycle, part of the election narrative, certainly. New Mexico congressional delegation, as you know, is entirely female and entirely either Hispanic or native uh, female. This is news, but it also starting to normalize am i off here or 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 the fact that so many women are winning offices now feels like it's not 
just a thing. It's not a blip. It's this is reality. This is what's going to happen from this point forward. Yeah, it seems that way to me as well. I, I think, uh, especially when you consider that it goes across party lines, right? right. That Good point. Uh, you mentioned Mexico. Uh, it's all female delegation, uh, but one of them is a Republican. So um, I think that it, there is some normalization going there. And I think maybe both parties, especially Republicans now, are are saying let's uh, and you look at the legislature, right? Uh, um, Crystal Diamond uh, took over for John Arthur Smith. It's a, a pretty key key spot there. Um, and I think we're starting to see women from both parties sort of get their chance now. Mm-hmm. Dan, uh, interestingly, power positions at the state legislature. Uh, touch on that, if you would, now being in female hands. Yeah, I, I think that'll be um, Senator Mimi Stewart has been nominated to be this new Senate president pro tem. Mm-hmm. Uh, she still has to win the full Senate vote. So we'll see about that. Uh, I think one striking thing to me is just kind of this deepening of the the uh, urban versus rural divide in New Mexico. Uh, Albuquerque is increasingly becoming more of a democratic stronghold as is Las Cruces and Santa Fe. Uh, there's currently, as of this year, only gonna be two Republican legislators in all of Albuquerque out of about 30 seats, wow. uh, which is a big change from even four, six years ago. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the rest of the state is, is getting more conservative. Um, you know, The only House Democrat who lost was down in, in the Silver City area. And I think some of those rural Democrats have been, been defeated. So I think we've also seen that nationally, but I think that's a trend where you know, getting more more polarized between the cities and, and the rural areas. And certainly I think that shows up at the legislature in debates over gun issues, um, mm-hmm. cannabis, things like that. And uh, I think that's something to watch going forward. Mm-hmm. Jessica, pick up on that natural uh, jumping off point for you there. What's, what's the sense of in the rural parts of our state when it comes to female positions of power and just frankly representation? A lot of our local tickets this year were um, GOP oriented and a lot of them were women. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is just a natural reflection of some of the shifts in in, um, in our level, our local level here at the county um, as well. And we had the really big one, the second congressional district. It was already held by a woman uh, Democrat and the GOP, you know, it's I think it's fair to say that they're extremely happy. They managed to flip that back over to Yvette Harrell. Um, the the. <laughs> La, 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 la. tongue tied sorry um <laughs> the uh the polarization that dan was talking about between our rural communities and how they um react off of what's happening in our urban areas i think is going to continue to happen but um maybe the expectation is and i know the conversations that i've had recently are about bringing some moderate conversations um to the state legislature to uh-huh. achieve some of the better for the benefit of the state whether you're in whether you're in a rural county or you're in one of our larger um, metro counties. Yeah. Julianne, do you think, you know, can Republicans win in bigger cities here and can Democrats win in smaller areas here? Or is it just, this is just it right now. That's the divide as Dan Boyd was mentioning. I mean, it seems, uh, you know, pretty defined at this moment mm-hmm. um, in, in the, the way the voter participation flows, in the way that the major parties have um, control and the types of candidates that they put up. Um, you know, it's discouraging in northern New Mexico, um, even if you want to have conversation about the big issues between a Democrat and a Republican candidate for a local office, um, it just becomes very difficult. 
Um, you know, the reporter, I think, has a, a reputation for, for being rather left-leaning and, and being not really too sympathetic to the conservative causes, um, which means that in this day and age, the Republicans don't even want to talk. And uh, that doesn't really, uh, I don't think, further anyone's understanding of each other's perspectives. And I think that for a lot of voters in Santa Fe who would be willing to kind of consider the other side and just sort of get written off like, oh, you're a progressive, you live in the blue dot, yep. we're, we're not even gonna try to talk to you. Um, I think that that attitude is is pervasive. I mean, Mark Ronchetti would not give an endorsement interview to the Santa Fe reporter. Hmm. Um, so it's not a surprise to me at all that he lost that race um, because I think that indicates an unwillingness, you know, whatever your, your your campaign you know platform is if when it comes down to it you're unwilling to talk to people that you perceive as your enemy then you're not going to get very far you got to have some folks from outside your party come in if you're going to win any election that's a good point there all right now the second biggest story of the year news that dominated the summer the killing of george floyd at the hands of minneapolis police and brianna taylor's killing in louisville kentucky gave rise yet again to america's race problem other police killings led to both violent and nonviolent responses. The Black Lives Matter movement found firm footing, and here in New Mexico, Native Americans raised their voices against statues, monuments, and buildings that honor controversial conquistadors like Juan de Oñate and Diego de, de Vargas. Andy, in Albuquerque, an Oñate statue protest turned violent. Looking back on it, what seems most important about the unrest we saw this year? I think a lot of it points to... Uh, it shows how tricky this this kind of stuff is and how infuriating it can be to uh, some people given the the leader's response to these things right in, in that Onyate protest um, there's probably more questions than answers about uh, what the plan was right so a little a little quick background was that uh, I think a week before um, there was sort of an overreaction by police there was a lot of rubber bullets and and SWAT gear um, and then the week later, it was like they, they paired it back, but then there was no one on site. And that's the question of where where were they? When did they plan to step in? Um, there was clearly a lot of uh, shoving and pushing and yelling uh, amongst those those groups, um, but not, a, you know, not a uniformed officer in sight. And then mm -hmm. we also found out later that there was an undercover officer there. So, again, um, more questions of what was the plan there? What were you going to do before somebody got shot? Right. And it might be reasonably argued that situation in part cost the chief of police his job, as a matter of fact, in Albuquerque. Uh, Julianne, a conversation is, is exactly what Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber promised, but it never happened. Then on Indigenous Peoples Day, as we, call, all we, as we all recall, activists pulled down the Civil War era soldiers monument in the plaza. Uh, a huge difference in the way it was handled versus the reworked Entrada during the fiestas. That conversation, what needs to happen to get that going now? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of sentiment in Santa Fe that like the time for talking came and went, you know, um, that this idea that we're now going to have this truth and reconciliation committee, which still has not been approved by the, the governing body and the, the members still haven't been appointed. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that they're somehow going to really heal this great division that has taken place in our community, I, I think it's just a fairly far-fetched. Um, yeah. You know, it, as you pointed out, that immediately up upon the heels of that shooting happening in Albuquerque at the Onyate statue, 
there were protests planned in northern New Mexico. There was one planned in Alcalde, and the officials there in Rio Riba County decided to pull down the statue of Oñate right. um, in advance of that protest happening, and so that, that didn't happen. Um, just a day or two later, it was uh, Juneteenth, and there was a, a protest planned in Santa Fe, and so instead of letting that action happen, um, the city decided to um, really, it seems clear now, attempt to remove the obelisk in the middle of the night. Right. There's debate, there's people saying that's not really what was happening, but there was a work crew with a, a, you know, equipment on the plaza. They did not remove the obelisk. They did remove another statue um, in front of the cathedral in Santa Fe. Um, that happened in June, and then I think people were, uh, you know, the mayor said, we're going to take down these controversial things. We're going to have a conversation about um, the language and the continued hurt that's being perpetrated on indigenous people in our community. And when when that didn't happen, I think, um, you know, people got frustrated mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you can just Google Plaza Obelisk to see the rest. There you go. Hey, Dan Boyd, out of this whole thing came the phrase defund the police. Everyone's heard it. No one's not heard it. And while the idea of what that means or should look like uh, varied, certainly, it really became a rallying cry for both sides of the aisle here. And, and who thought three words would be dangerous territory? How come this became so controversial? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, some of these catchphrases catch hold in, in the popular opinion. Um, I think this one, and at least for most people, weren't exactly calling for police departments to be de totally defunded or disbanded, but mm -hmm. but for kind of reshaping and, and for a better relationship between uh, law enforcement and the communities they serve, especially communities of color. Um, you know, I think both Andy and Julianne have kind of mentioned that public officials haven't really been been leading the charge on this. They've been kind of trying to respond to, to the these public movements. And I think, you know, at the state level, uh, Governor Lujan Grisham created a racial justice council. There was a civil rights commission that met. So there's been some movement, but, you know, as of this date, still nothing, no real changes in state level policy. Um, so I think these conversations still need to be had, but they, I think they do need to be held quickly. And, and as we found out uh, last year, you know, if that doesn't happen, then people will take matters into their own hands. And, yeah. and I think that elected officials maybe need to be a little more agile on these issues. Mm -hmm. Jessica, how did this all play out in the southeast part of your state, um, in the southern parts of New Mexico? What, 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 what happened there during all these protests? The issue was at a boil in some communities, but I think down here it was more of a simmer. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it was an opportunity to watch and see what the, the debate was um, happening in Santa Fe, Albuquerque. But it was also um, an opportunity to see um, some some of our really underserved communities are communities of color. Um, minorities um, have an opportunity to speak up. So um, we were we were blessed to be able to help cover some of these local panels um, addressing these issues between um, inequality and disparity. Um, and also, one of the things that it, that I saw that was probably the, the most interesting come out of all of this in Southern New Mexico was the rise of the younger voices in these communities, right? right. We saw some really, um, we saw some really young leaders step forward and say, okay, here's where we stand on this. We, we commit to being leaders um, um, on this issue for our communities. So that was really inspiring. Busy summer, no doubt. We only have one issue left, folks. We'll be back in a few minutes. 
All right. We hope you had a chance this week on the 29th. Uh, we aired here on NMPBS a new American Master special all about the life and history of Laura Ingalls Wilder, a beloved figure and writer. Uh, of course, her books, uh, Little House on the Prairie, in the TV show, we all are very familiar with those stories. And we hope you got a chance to see that. If you didn't, it's okay. You still can on our website. Go to NMPBS. Click Watch and Search for American Masters uh, from Prairie to Page. That's the name of the show, all about Laura Ingalls Wilder. But it reminded us how in the summer of 2018, we were able to sit down with Caroline Fraser. She is an author who lives in Santa Fe, and she won that year the Pulitzer Prize for her biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder and was really able to bring some new light and some new Um, context to uh, this important historical figure and her work and the lasting legacy of it all. And so we wanted to pull that back out, dust it off, share it with you. And again, once you get done hearing this interview, maybe you'll want to go find that show, that American Masters, and give that a watch. We hope so. It's a really good show. But right now, here's correspondent Megan Kamrick with Carolyn Fraser. Millions of people have read the Little House books by Laura Ingalls Wilder, which chronicled her family's pioneer life in the Midwest and Great Plains. Ms. Wilder brought great detail to her descriptions, but she also left much out. This week, American Masters premiered a new documentary about her life, which you can still watch on NMPBS.org, by the way. But it reminded us of an interview we did a couple years back with Santa Fe author and Pulitzer Prize winner Caroline Fraser. Prairie Fires, the American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, sheds new light on the life of this American icon. Here's an NMIF correspondent, Megan Kamrick, with that interview from 2018. I'm joined by Caroline Frazier, author of Prairie Fires, the American Dreams of Laurel Ingalls Wilder. Thank you so much for joining us, Caroline. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I have to ask you right off, what was it like to win the Pulitzer Prize? It was very surprising, I have to say. <laughs> Just always kind of seemed like something that happened to other people, not uh, not me. So I was I was quite surprised, but delighted. I mean, it's a wonderful honor and and humbling to to have that kind of recognition. How did you find out? Um, my husband was actually watching the live stream in his office, <laughs> unbeknownst to me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, he he came over to my office and. Uh, had kind of an odd look on his face, and he said, you just won the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) That's how I found out. Wow. Yeah, it was was extraordinary. Why did you find Laura Ingalls Wilder to be such a fascinating subject? Um, I've written about her uh, a few times in the past, um, but I guess I started where everybody else did, which was you know, as a fan of her work as a kid. You know, I read all the Little House books. I I loved them. I read them over and over again. Um, And I think I always had a sense that there was some personal connection to uh, my family because I'm from, you know, an immigrant uh, farming families from the Midwest. And so I had heard them tell stories about uh, the farm and and how tough that life was. So I think that I was always kind of drawn to the Little House books because they reflected Mm -hmm. um, that part of my family's past. 
like many others and you, I grew up reading and rereading all the Little House books. Why do you think they're so popular? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, for one thing, they're just great books. They're, they're great children's literature. They um, tell stories that are uh, incredibly engaging. There's something really soothing and, and comforting even about a lot of the way in which uh, things are described, even though there are a lot of hazards uh, <laughs> throughout the books, natural disasters and so forth. There are these wonderful descriptions of, you know, how Pa builds the log cabin and how he makes the door and how he makes bullets for his gun and how, you know, Ma makes cheese. And, you know, they're just these sort of wonderful things that you can lose yourself in as a kid. And um, so I think that is, is a really powerful part of their appeal. Um, but there's more to it than that. I think that um, they remain really popular because they do capture something uh, really central about the American experience. They're about uh, the frontier, about pioneering. Um, and they, they provide a kind of origin story for uh, those of us who came that route. How did they uh, build upon and perpetuate myths of westward expansion and pioneer life? Um, they really, th especially through the, the most famous book, which is Little House on the Prairie, they, they really provided a, a kind of child's view of, of what that was all about, of what the whole uh, project of moving westward um, entailed and what it was like and how it was, you know, on the one hand, an incredible adventure of, of going to places where uh, white settlers had not previously been. Uh, in, in her case, it was Kansas. Um, but they also uh, gave this kind of, you know, child's eye view of manifest destiny, of um, this, this idea that uh, that white settlers had the right to uh, spread out and, and take land that uh, did not, in fact, belong to them. You begin the book, actually, with the U.S.-Dakota War, which ended in 1862. Why was this event so pivotal in setting the stage for pioneers like the Ingalls and the Wilders and Manifest Destiny? Well, I, I, the more I found out about that event, which is mentioned in Little House on the Prairie, um, at, at a couple of really pivotal moments, the more I was uh, convinced that it was really an important part of the background of the Ingalls family's uh, life and experience and, and so many other families um, because it really was uh, the moment when um, white settlers really uh, came up against um, the, the fact of what they were trying to do. I mean, they were taking land. Um, there had been a number of treaties that were worked out that were uh, incredibly um, uh, unfair and uh, deceitful, really, on behalf of the government. Um, and in 1862, the uh, Dakota tribe essentially rose up and, and attacked uh, white settlers in Minnesota. Uh, which really changed the whole game. It was really the beginning of the Plains Indian Wars, which would then, uh, you know, take place over the next 
30-some years, but it really set the stage for Laura Ingalls' life, even though it happened a few years before she was born. What was her relationship to Native Americans in the books and in her life? In the books, you see them largely in Little House on the Prairie because that's when she, as a child of a, around five, actually encountered uh, Osage Indians uh, in Kansas because her father, uh, who was a squatter, um, basically just settled down on land that belonged to the Osage in, in a, a territory that uh, was specifically um, marked as, as not open to, to white settlement. Um, so she then became a part of that whole squatters movement uh, in Kansas. And the funny thing is I don't think as an adult she had much um, understanding of, of either the individual tribes that she was writing about or the history uh, behind what her family had done. But she nonetheless had these very specific, dramatic memories of encounters with Indians. And so she just wrote about those. She laid that out. Uh, <clears throat> and it became, I think, a very uh, emblematic uh, treatment of whites' interaction uh, with Indians at that time. There were uh, a lot of brutal realities in pioneer life. What did you want to illuminate in her life in this book that we wouldn't know just by reading her books or watching the hugely popular TV series? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was really interested in getting at um, some of the economic reality realities behind their lives because that, I think, really gets lost uh, in the telling of the story uh, stories in her books. Um, she really shied away from anything that portrayed her family in a less than positive light. She really wanted to memorialize her parents uh, in the Little House books. She said this over and over again. And, um, and so she leaves out all the stuff about their debts, about the um, inability to really bring crops to market and make a living as a farmer. and. Um, so even the death of her younger brother. That's you right. Yeah, the the you know as scholars have pointed out, there's there's no death in the Little House books. Uh, she left out the the birth and death of her her little brother, Freddie, uh, which came about really in the in the aftermath of one of these really terrible uh, economic disasters for the family after the uh, locust plague of the uh, the 1870s. So. Um, by trying to sort of explain what the cyclical nature of these financial panics that just, you know, came along once every few years, really, in, in her early life, uh, I, I hoped to kind of show people how it was almost impossible for farmers to make a living then, for any kind of small-scale farming to be successful or sustainable, and her father uh, Shirley did encounter that. Given that she curated so much of her own public history, how did you uncover that wider reality about her life? Well, a lot of these things have been known to some extent for, for a long time. The, um, her manuscripts, some of them, uh, uh, the unpublished manuscript that was left at her death uh, was published in the 1970s. That's called the first 
four years. Uh, and that really explained what had happened to her after um, her marriage, which was just a series of, of disasters, really. And so a lot of these which things... Which we never knew about. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, earlier readers had, had not been aware of. And so I think a lot of that uh, really has been out there, but um, I wanted to look at the history behind her life uh, and, and show how her life was just so emblematic of all these major movements that have to do with, you know, white settlement and uh, the Plains Indian Wars, um, and even on to the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, because she wrote the books during mm -hmm. uh, that time in the 1930s. And you can really see a lot of, of uh, her response to that in certain passages in the books. Um, when you mentioned the locusts, that's one of the most memorable stories I recalled, or I guess they're grasshoppers, locusts, they destroy their wheat crop. Yeah. You explained this is a huge disaster across the plains, one of the worst in our yes. history. It left people in real danger of starvation, yet authorities in the East, even cities in the Midwest, were pretty unsympathetic to their plight. What does that story show us about how American society at that time viewed pioneers like the Ingalls and the Wilders? Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a kind of a major national crisis and, um, and a tragedy for, for everybody who was caught up in it. And it does indeed show that there was a real limited amount of patience by, you know, the federal authorities um, and uh, people in the East generally. I mean, you see a lot of really uh, unsympathetic editorials in newspapers. Um, from it's the pretty East. shocking. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary, you know, the, the language. And yet, you know, if you look at some of the language that we currently see in, you know, political uh, discourse now, there's a lot of similarities there between, um, you know, we're, we're tired of these people uh, asking for more money. We're tired of, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain um, lack of sympathy for immigrants, you know, and, and so... You, you can see that there's uh, hasn't maybe been as much change in the political discourse as you might think. It's instructive because like we have sort of a golden view of these times from her books, but even generally we think, oh, things were better back then. I'm like, well, maybe not so much. Yeah. <laughs> maybe people didn't take care of each other. Right. How does her life offer a window to explore other key points in the evolution of America and American identity? Well, it's interesting to look at, at the origins of her family and how they came to this country. I mean, her uh, ancestors arrived uh, with the Puritans and were um, Puritans. And so she offers this extraordinary kind of, um, uh, you know, you can see sort of the way stations of American history throughout the generations of that family. I talk a little bit about her um, great-grandfather Samuel Ingalls, who actually appears in Little House in the Big Woods, not by name, but uh, he's Charles Ingalls' grandfather, and she tells this wonderful story about him, uh, about her, uh, uh, her grandfather Lansford, uh, when he was a boy, you know, sledding, creeping off on the Puritan Sabbath, with his brothers to sled down this hill, and 
And uh, as they're sledding down, this is completely forbidden, of course, because you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And as they go down the hill, this pig steps out of the woods and is picked up on their, their sled and begins <laughs> squealing its head off. And, and uh, this, of course, wakes up their, their father, who has fallen into a stupor after the uh, incredibly long sermon at church. So it's a wonderful story that kind of shows you how that Puritan um, past was you know, still very much present, even up until uh, Charles Ingalls' grandfather's life, and how the various generations had sort of fallen away from some of those things, and yet they still retained that uh, deep belief in self-reliance, that, that you didn't take anything from anybody else, unless, of course, they were Native Americans. That was okay, but um, in their view. But they really just had this, this you know, complete uh, devotion to that um, idea that you had to provide for yourself. And this goes a long way to explaining uh, Wilder's own uh, distaste for the New Deal in the 1930s. Which was taking place during the Dust Bowl, and you touch on the fact that one of the other iconic things in this book is that the settlers, like them, who went out to the plains, altered the plains irrevocably. Yes, they, they certainly did, and, and I think this was not... Which eventually um, led to the Dust Bowl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the 1890s, you see a kind of uh, early version of the Dust Bowl, which is part of what drove Wilder and her husband out of that region, and, and uh, which is why they ended up living in the Missouri Ozarks, you know. So far away from her family. And I think that uh, that move really spurred her to want to write about them because she'd been separated from them basically for the rest of her life. I think you first came to Laura's story through her daughter, uh, Rose Wilder Lane, when there were allegations years ago about her being the real author of mm -hmm. the Little House books. Rose had a tenuous connection to the truth <laughs> sometimes. Uh, she became a writer during the era of, yeah. yellow, era of yellow journalism. What was her actual role in writing the books? Well, it's complicated. I mean, she, I think, is probably responsible for the books in, in, a, in large part because she, as a professional writer, had uh, connections to agents, to publishers. Um, she was once, you know, much more famous than her mother. Um, and she, I think, very early on saw the commercial potential in her mother's stories. She's, she'd been hearing these stories all her life since she was a little girl. And she knew that all these sort of, you know, dramatic tales about blizzards and locusts and <laughs> um, Indians really potentially had, um, you know, could be sold to uh, magazines or, or publishers. So she began, I think, urging her mother very early on to do something with that material. And I think her mother had always wanted to do this as well. You know, there are indications quite early on that she was trying to, to write a version of her memoir. As you uncovered some of the realities of of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life and pioneer life, did you ever feel sad that the stories you loved in childhood weren't quite the reality she offered? You know, I, I, I 
didn't feel sad because I guess to me the reality is is almost as if as interesting if not more interesting than the stories themselves I think the stories are wonderful and the and the experience of reading them remains um, really powerful I still find them um, very moving uh, to read but the reality is also just another layer of um, of, of fascinating background uh, to the stories that you love. So I, I don't think that it really takes anything away from them, but certainly people may feel differently. <laughs> How did this process compare to previous books and articles that you've done? Well, I had the luxury of, of you know, revisiting this material several times over the years. Uh, first with a kind of long piece that I wrote for the New York Review of Books um, about Rose and about her um, role in, in uh, editing and shaping uh, the books and then edited the, the Library of America's uh, Little House books uh, that came out in a two-volume edition. So that gave me um, an incredible kind of preparation to do something like this. And so you don't often get that kind of, you know, backgrounding in uh, a subject. So I was really fortunate um, in this project to have previously done a lot of work on the manuscripts and the, um, the editing the books themselves and writing notes about the text and all of that really contributed uh, to what I was um, doing in the biography. We have a, you know, a robust writing community in New Mexico and also people doing history and biography. What is that community like for you? Is it a very supportive community you can draw upon? Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, I, I've met people in Santa Fe who are very involved in, um, in founding the Biographers International group. Um, James McGrath Morris uh, is a good friend who was instrumental in founding that group, which was really helpful to me in terms of, you know, conferences and, and learning stuff about how to approach certain problems and issues that you face as a biographer. Um, what has the project done in terms of inspiring future books or writing projects for you? Um, I think I would love to, you know, take up uh, more work, I don't know whether a book or possibly articles, but I really love children's literature. I think it's really a fascinating topic that, that opens up a lot of questions about influence and identity, about how uh, we kind of shape our identity around stories, stories that we've heard as kids. Um, so I'd love to do more work in that field. Well, Caroline Frazier, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Oh, well, thank you. It's been great. All right. It's the moment you all have been waiting for. It is our top story of 2020. Again, we joked about it here, but you could have said stories one through 10 were all COVID. It was just uh, such an all-encompassing story and impacted every aspect of our lives in 2020 and really filled up most of the year. 
in, in many ways. Um, but we felt like it was so all-encompassing, we needed to break off it into chunks. But here at number one, as you will hear, is really um, COVID-19 and our public health systems, which were obviously strained to the max this year. We had public health orders, stay-at-home orders, shelter-in-place orders. We had fights over those orders. We had defiance of those orders. Uh, you name it. We had all of it in there. And, of course, we also know that um, the strain on the system really exacerbated something, a couple things we knew here in New Mexico. One, that we just don't have the depth of resources in the healthcare uh, field as a lot of other states, which made the surge in cases we saw, especially this fall, all that much more troublesome. Also, inequities in the system. We saw the Navajo Nation early on have to lock down the reservation over the weekends after massive outbreak there. You're talking about something like 30% of the population on the reservation that doesn't even have electricity and have to travel, even get water. And then you put a pandemic on top of that. Um, you talk about generations of families living in the same place. Um, it was just a recipe for disaster and really pointed out some of the systemic inequities that we've known about. But hopefully now we can really see why it's so important that we need to take care of closing those um, gaps and taking care of all New Mexicans. And uh, it's something that's going to linger with us for a long time, um, for sure, here in New Mexico. Uh, so here now is back to Gene Grant and the line panel. This year's top story is no surprise. COVID-19 and the global pandemic changed absolutely everything about life. It's going to cost 2,000 New Mexicans their lives, a stunning and tragic number that's sure to rise as we begin 2021. Case counts shot above 100,000 and are skyrocketing upwards even after a November stay-at-home order by the governor. From a public health standpoint, this has been a disaster and a sort of slow-motion crash that has gained momentum as we all head indoors during this holiday season. From the outset, the governor and the state leaders tried to paint this as a we're in this together kind of a thing, but I'm not certain that idea ever really truly grabbed hold. Dan, any sense of why New Mexicans never seem to be pushing in the same direction? I don't think New Mexicans are unique in that regard from other states. I, I do think, given our state's nature, the high poverty rates, um, lack of infrastructure in some places, that we were at maybe more risk from this virus than other places. I, I think for a while it seemed promising and I think it's human nature after after months that people got tired of, of staying at home and the isolation and, and maybe let their guard down a little bit. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I think we all thought maybe it'd be a month or two at the beginning of the pandemic. And now here we are, you know, nine months going into one year later almost. Um, so I, I think it certainly has exposed some of the, the shortcomings in our healthcare system um, you know, that that's been a real concern of just being overwhelmed. And, and I do think maybe looking at, at ways to better serve rural parts of the state with healthcare, and even given how sprawling New Mexico is and how to transport patients from one part to another, um, you know, certainly in, in very grim ways has exposed some of those shortcomings. Mm -hmm. Jess, I'm curious, uh, the public health orders had an immediate pushback from your part of the state. A lot of folks just weren't having it, Republicans uh, particularly. Um, what was the alternative or preferred course of action down there? Did you ever hear of one from those folks who had issues with how this was going to go? 
No, early on, I think we took our cue from the national rhetoric at the time, which was that this is a um, opportunity for Democrats to really um, stick it to the, the political minority in the state, um, especially the southern counties. When we talked about alternatives to what was um, what was being asked of us to, you know, ensure everybody's health and safety, we talked about um, personal responsibility, right? Leaving it up to each individual to decide whether or not they're at risk, or if they have family or um, people they share spaces with who are at risk, and really leaving it up to them to do things like wear face masks and keep social distancing. Um, the biggest pushback came as soon as the um, orders to close the non-essential businesses came down. I think we all realized really early on what kind of um, impact that would have on the local economy. And as soon as that flag went up, I think that there was really a, a hard wall that we just weren't going to be able to pass. Mm -hmm. Andy, interestingly, I you know, depending on who you talk to, retailers seem to have gotten the short end of the stick from their point of view, not mine, but from theirs. Was there something maybe perhaps the governor could have done differently, balancing the needs of public health versus balancing the needs of keeping business going? I don't. I don't know. I mean, if there is, I don't know what that what what she could have done differently. Uh, I think in in these situations, there's going to be, you know, uh, to put it bluntly, I guess winners and losers. Not that that I, I know we hear that a lot. That you know, the state picks winners and losers. But I just think that there's some people that just fact of the matter is their business doesn't. Uh, translate to a, a you know a world that where everything's shut down now there's some mm -hmm. and again this is this is sort of a thing that's been ongoing there's a lot of local businesses that have said hey we can't compete with online shopping mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. before the pandemic and now it's kind of like they're almost forced into this new way of, of doing business to whether it's online shipping or online ordering and you come pick it up it's it's definitely I guess, sort of a, a change in how they do business, probably going forward as well. Yeah. And Julianne, you know, the governor's messaging on COVID-19 by any measure has been measured. I, I think we could all agree on that. Um, but individually, she's been asking more than enforcing, but she's cracked the whip on a few businesses out there. And, you know, <laughs> high profile in a way, I'm thinking of the, you know, the mayor of Grants way early on who, you know, had a big problem with this. I mean, there was all kinds of issues there. You know, how did that strategy work for her looking back on 2020? I mean, it feels like the enforcement was really hit or miss. Okay. Um, and I, I know certainly even though Santa Fe is, is a place that's perceived to be fairly, you know, uh, receptive to this mask ordinance, um, you know, receptive to the, the like, we need to close this in order to, to save the, the public health. At the same time, you've got you know a hardware store on the south side that got a, a five-digit figure fine um, because the inspectors found a couple of its employees not wearing masks. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we get reports from places like you know, you know corporate. I won't name any of them, but corporations that have told their employees to essentially stand down. You know, if someone comes into the business without a mask, the employees have been told not to try to enforce that. And I think when you're a small business and you've been told, hey, we're going to fine you and we're going to shut you down and we're going to shame you. Right. And then you've got a corporation that's just sort of allowed to do whatever they want, uh, it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really hard for small businesses all over the state um, and something that that's been a big challenge as the rules do seem to create more leniency for a big box store. You know, Walmart has it a whole lot easier than, um, you know, the gift store on Marcy Street. Mm -hmm. And maybe there were ways to address that. Um, like Andy, though, I'm not sure that I 
want to be the one to outline them or that that I'm really even sure that would have worked better. Yeah, that's a good point. It's hard to look back and say what could have done, you know, everybody was sort of on the fly every day. It's a tough one. Uh, looking forward to 2021 here. We've just got about a minute or so. Let me start with uh, uh, Dan Boyd. You know, we've got a vaccine coming online, certainly. We're all excited to kind of get that going, but any predictions for 2021? What's in your gut uh, as you look ahead for New Mexico? I think one really interesting debate will be about the state's emergency powers laws. Um, a lot of the, the laws the governor has invoked have been, you know, were passed about 20 years ago after 9-11, and this has been their first test. And I, I think there's pushback on both sides, um, you know, Republicans who would like to see those powers curtailed a little bit. And then maybe, you know, recognizing right now, um, New Mexico doesn't allow alcohol uh, curbside takeout or delivery. And so maybe expanding them in those regards. And I think this has really been a stress test for those laws that were kind of long dormant and now might need to be revisited. Mm -hmm. I leave that as the last word. And I want to thank you all for not just sharing your thoughts on the year's big stories, but for all the blood, sweat and tears you bring to your profession. There's a lot of it and not an easy one. But as the Constitution points out, it's vital to a healthy democracy. Take care for you at home. We thank you for starting the new year with us. In many ways, it's nice to say goodbye to 2020, but how this next year turns out is on each one of us. Stay healthy, be kind, and as always, thanks for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. That's going to do it for this week and our first show of 2021, but we will leave you with some final thoughts from Gene Grant, as always. We wish you the best in the new year. We wish everybody health and safety. And again, it's going to be a busy one right out of the gates with the legislative session and a special election to replace Representative Deb Holland. Should she be nominated or should her nomination be approved? Lots going on. We'll have it all for you in the coming weeks. And we always encourage you for listening and staying engaged and informed. And we will talk to you again next week. Happy 2021, everyone. What more is there to say about 2020? It's the year that was and always will be. The end of December is the traditional time to set back and assess the year that we have all lived. But I'd like to thank all the journalists who put time and effort into ranking the top 10 stories of 2020. But as you might imagine, there could easily be a half dozen more. At the end of it all, the stress, the uncertainty, the financial fear, all the things that have challenged us in some way, we made it to the new year. 2021 is on, of course. And we are going to need to take a deep breath and really lean into it soon enough. But for a moment, let's give thanks for what we have. Thanks again for joining us, for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.